You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises up the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed, in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and his mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the left, but are still hungry. They devour on the right, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to share with you this morning one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors. I think this book is actually on the resource table because it fits well with our series that we're in right now in the book of Isaiah. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this in the very first chapter of his book, Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The book of Isaiah exists to refine what comes into our minds when we think about God. God wants you to have an accurate picture of God. God wants you to have an accurate sense and understanding of what He, God, is like. And so this morning, He wants to introduce you to an aspect of His being and character 
that many of you will likely have a hard time with, and that is the anger of God. So it's nice, dark, rainy, stormy day outside, we might as well talk about God's anger, so let's have fun with it. Let's, let's talk about anger. When's the last time you got angry? Maybe on the way here? What do you do with your anger? How does your anger express itself? There's sort of two categories or two sides of the spectrum. Some of you are stuffers. Some of, some of you are venters, right? So how many of you, let's be honest, show of hands, you lean toward being a stuffer. You go inward, internal, kind of boil over, but seethe inwardly. How many of you, that's anger for you? All right, thank you. Uh, how many of you are more on the side of vent, let it fly, watch out who's in the room? How many of you are kind of that person, all right? How many of you can do equally both well, right, depending on the circumstance, all right? We, we tend toward either extreme, depending on how we're wide and on circumstances. And here's the funny thing about anger. Most of us have no problem reserving the right for ourselves to be angry, right? I mean, we don't want to be angry all the time, but we sort of feel like, hey, at certain times and in certain ways, that's just how I get. We like to make excuses for our anger and justify our anger and talk about how it should be okay for us to feel anger. What's funny is that the only thing we really have a problem with is allowing God to have anger. We don't have a problem with a God who's loving, who's kind, who's gracious, who's benevolent and merciful. We do have a problem with a God who is angry. Well, there are some important differences between our anger and God's, but I think first we need to just get clear. Why is it good news that God can become angry? See, if God is not angry then God is not good. Let's just talk about current events. Last week in South Korea, Lee Jun-suk, the captain of the ferry that sank in the Yellow Sea a couple weeks ago, was arrested for abandoning ship while 300 passengers were still on board. And as the reports have come out, what it's shown is that as the crew was instructing passengers not to evacuate, the captain himself was stepping onto one of the first rescue boats that showed up, leaving hundreds to drown. If God is not angry, then God is not good. Last week in our own city, Nico Jenkins was found guilty of four murders within the span of 10 days last year. His murder spree began in South Omaha where he shot and killed two Hispanic men who were sitting in a car. A few days later, he went to North Omaha and killed a young African-American man whom he knew. A few days later, he went out west and dragged a mother out of her car, shot her and left her dead in the middle of the street. If God is not angry, then God is not good. Last week in Nigeria, Islamic militants from the terror group Boko Haram kidnapped 200 teenage girls from a boarding school. Because of instability in that region, there have been no attempts to rescue the girls. There's no one who can compete with Boko Haram in terms of their military might right now. And so these girls are essentially left 
to the whim of these soldiers. If God is not angry, then God is not good. When you and I hear of evil in the world, it arouses something in us. We feel a need for justice. If God is not angry at evil and sin, then God is not good. And yet we know, don't we, that anger is not always good. So how is it that God's anger can be right and good? Isaiah wants to show us this morning. Isaiah wants to show us three things about God's anger. He wants to show us that God has a righteous anger, a sovereign anger, and a purposeful anger. God's anger is righteous, sovereign, and purposeful, and this is what makes it good. And so let's see this aspect of God's character. Isaiah's goal this morning, and my goal this morning, is that you would, you would see God in a new light. That your eyes would be open to the goodness of God in His justice, in His disposition toward evil in the world. So first of all, let us see how God's anger is a righteous anger. When we say God's anger is righteous, what we mean is that it is right and good and reasonable and just. It's in keeping with what is good and right in the universe. And this is where we have to be very careful because what we tend to do when we think about God's anger is we liken it to our anger. And that's very dangerous because remember, as Isaiah has already shown us, God is holy. God is not like us. God is other and different and pure and removed and entirely different than we are. And thus his anger is a holy anger and ours usually is not. Can we agree with that? Our anger often is unrighteous because our anger is usually provoked by us not getting our way. And as we know, because we're complex people broken by sin, what we want is not always good. Our way is not always the best way. Our anger is rarely righteous anger. Here's how Ray Ortland describes the difference. God's wrath is not a moody vindictiveness. I mean, that's a pretty good description of your anger and mine, isn't it? I love that phrase, a moody, that's, that's kind of how anger feels most of the time, a moody vindictiveness. That's not what God's anger is. Rather, it's the solemn determination of a doctor cutting away the cancer that's killing his patient. God's anger is surgical and precise and good. Our anger is more like moody vindictiveness. God's anger is righteous. And Isaiah shows us in this text four specific things that arouse or awaken God's righteous anger. You're going to see four things God's people are engaged in that cause God's righteous and just and holy anger to be aroused. God should be upset when we are participating in evil. And Isaiah wants to show you four things the people of God are doing that provoke God to anger. It begins with 
pride. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So Isaiah is speaking here of the northern kingdom, the people of Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Do you see how the people's Pride and arrogance is manifesting itself. What it looks like, very simply, is a lack of God consciousness. The bricks have fallen. The sycamores have been cut down. These describe the judgments that God has been bringing against His people to get their attention. He has been active in bringing enemies to oppose them and causing their cities to be destroyed and causing their forests to be laid bare. This has been God's work to get their attention. And the people don't recognize it as such. Their response is, oh, some bad things happened, but you know what? It's all right. we're just going to rebuild and make it better. Oh yeah, those sycamore trees got cut down, but you know what? They didn't look that good anyway. We're going to plant cedars in their place. The people lack a God awareness, a God consciousness, a sense that behind the circumstances of their existence, God is at work. God says, this is what pride looks like. Pride looks like you don't see my hand in your life. You don't see me behind what's going on in your world. And so if you're just moving on to the next thing without stopping to ask, what is God doing here? It's a manifestation of self-concern, pride, arrogance. What's fascinating is that in the New Testament, the Apostle James leverages this exact same argument. Look at James chapter 4. It's on the screen for you. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What's the difference between saying, tomorrow let's go over to Boston, spend a year there and make a profit, and saying, tomorrow, if the Lord wills, we're going to go to Boston and spend a year there and make a profit? What's the difference? The difference is one factors God into the calculation and one does not. And you notice what James says? As it is, you boast in your arrogance. He uses the same word and leverages the same charge that Isaiah is making. Hey, when you factor God out of the circumstances, you know what's behind that? Arrogance. Pride, a lack of God awareness, arouses God's anger. Why? Because, my friends, God is the most important reality in the universe. Everything in your life has to do with God. Everything in your circumstances has to do with God. So the first thing that arouses God's anger among His people is... Pride, a lack of God consciousness. 
The second thing that Isaiah shows us that arouses God's anger is stubbornness. Look at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Notice the same logic is in play here, right? God's saying, listen, I'm the one who's struck you, and the reason I'm doing that is so that you might turn, so that you might repent, so that you might turn back to me, and yet the people did not turn. They were stubborn, they were persistent in their self-will and their pursuit of their own vision for life. We might call it unrepentance, impenitence, stubbornness. My friends, repentance is active. The word repent means to turn. It means I'm going in this direction, living out my vision for life, pursuing my agenda, and when God shows me that that's not in line with His desires, I turn. I turn back to God. I turn and walk in a new direction. We're very skilled at replacing repentance with confession. Which is merely acknowledging that I shouldn't be going in this direction without actually doing anything about it. God says, my people did not turn. That's the problem. What about you? How have you become stubborn in your ways, in your path, in your sin? So as a result, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Everybody's stubborn, everybody's walking off in their own way, and everybody's in chaos. And here's the result. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. That's God's judgment about his people. My friends, that's the worst thing that could ever be said about the people of God. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Because what God intended for us is that in following Him, we would become wise, not foolish. That our speech would be seasoned with salt and appropriate, not foolish and degrading. What God intended for us is that in following Him, we would become godly and righteous, not godless and evildoers. So He says, for all this, His anger has not turned away, and His hand is stretched out still. Pride, arrogance, stubbornness. Thirdly, look at this, self-seeking. Notice how all these terminate on self, and yet there's sort of different manifestations of that. Look at verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickest of the forests, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Do you see what God is saying here? He's saying, look, 
when you begin to walk down the path of wickedness, the consequences are beyond what you can control. Your life begins to get consumed. Things get burned up that you never intended to get burned up. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. Now notice what they do. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Their appetites control them, and yet they're not satiated. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. In other words, the people are turned against one another. Together they are against Judah. What he's describing here is a relentless self-seeking where I'm out for myself, I'm ruled by my appetites, and therefore you exist to serve me rather than I existing to serve you. And he says what results in that is we just devour one another. We just eat one another up. We just use one another. We're consumed. What about you? Where in your life is there self-seeking? What are you in it for? What are you seeking in being a part of this church, a part of God's people? Are you in this to serve others, to give yourself away for the glory of God? Are you in it to gain something for yourself? See, the great paradox of life is that the more you give yourself away to others for the glory of God, the more fulfilled you are. And the less you give away yourself to others, the less fulfilled you are. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect because the kingdom of God is upside down and counterintuitive. What the world tells you is you you protect your interests, you, you take care of yourself, and that's how you will be fulfilled. And God says, no, no, in looking out for others, in serving others, in giving yourself away, that's how you'll be fulfilled. God's anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out toward his people because they're devouring one another in their own self-seeking and indulgence. And again, the New Testament authors reiterate this same thing. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, If you, church, bite and devour, same word, one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. If you're in this for yourself, you'll end up devouring one another and being consumed. Pride, stubbornness, self-seeking. Finally, injustice arouses God's anger. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous or sinful decrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Notice it's interesting here that he's he's speaking against those who are in positions of power. 
those who can write policy, those who can influence systems and structures. He says, when you're in that place and what you do is write oppression, not write as in R-I-G-H-T, but write as in W-R-I-T-E. When you're involved in creating policies that keep people down, that prevent justice, that take advantage of those who are needy to advantage those who are not needy, God's unhappy. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So what about you? Are you in a place of influence? Are you the owner or leader of a business where your policies have an effect on your employees? Are you on a board? Are you a manager of a corporation or a company where you have a say in policy and procedure? Are you active politically in a way that gives you authority and opportunity to say what's going to happen? If so, are you honoring justice? Are you watching out for the needy? Are you taking care that you give everybody a fair shot at opportunity? Four times in this passage, after each one of these little vignettes, we read, For all this, God's anger has not turned away, and His hand is stretched out still. God's anger is a righteous anger. What that means is, it can't just go away. It can't just evaporate. God doesn't just get over it. Why not? Because his anger is driven by justice. Just like you wouldn't feel good if the courts started just letting everybody go free who was actually guilty of crime, that would be a chaotic society. Why? Because it would be a betrayal of justice. God's anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out. Why? Because he's just. He can't turn a blind, he can't turn a blind eye towards sin. God's anger is a righteous anger. It's not a welling up of some unrighteous frustration. It's a right and good disposition that he has against all that is evil. Not only is God's anger a righteous anger, it's also a sovereign anger. Go to Isaiah 10, verse 5. We're going to continue all the way through Chapter 10, notice in 10 verse 5, he says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. Okay, so there's a change of subject here. He has been addressing Israel, the people of Israel. Now he's addressing Assyria, and notice what he calls Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So what he's saying, he's now speaking to Assyria, and he's saying the Assyrians are the rod or the tool of his anger. So he said his anger has been aroused against the people of Israel for their disobedience and sin and wickedness. And what he's going to do is use the Assyrians as the rod or the tool of his judgment against the Israelites. But notice what he has to say about the Assyrians. 
Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him. To take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. See, God says, I'm using Assyria for a certain purpose, but that's not what they think. What's in their mind is to to take over nations and build an empire. They're, They're out for their own purposes. They don't even recognize my purposes in using them. For he, that is the king of Assyria, says, verse 8, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? These are cities in Israel. And the king of Assyria is saying, Yeah, aren't these cities just like all the other cities I've captured? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? The king of Assyria is a good skeptical atheist. He says, look, worship whatever gods you want. It's not going to stop me from coming and kicking your butt. You can pray to whatever idol, whatever god, whatever religious system you think is important. Not going to change my intentions. I'm taking you over. Whatever. I've destroyed all the other kingdoms and all their idols. I'll do the same to Jerusalem. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, when he has executed his just judgment on his people, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Notice the king of Assyria manifests the exact same problem that God has already confronted in his people, right? A boastful, prideful arrogance that lacks a God consciousness. God says, I'm going to use this man to accomplish my purposes, and then I'm going to deal with his arrogance. For he says, notice the operative pronoun in this next paragraph. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Sounds sort of like that Seattle Seahawks guy Super Bowl speech, doesn't it? God says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? God says, Hey, king of Assyria, you know what you are? You're a tool. In my hand. You're nothing but an instrument I'm using to accomplish my purposes in the earth. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. 
the light of Israel will become a fire and His Holy One a flame and it will burn and devour His thorns and briars in one day. The glory of His forest and of His fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of His forest will be so few that a child can write them down. My friends, listen to me. This is one of the most important passages on the sovereignty of God in the entire Bible. Because what it's telling you and me is God uses even people who aren't aware that they're being used by God. God's sovereignty in his universe, God's control over his world is so complete that he uses even sinful, wicked people to accomplish his purposes. And their ignorance of their being used in this way doesn't matter at all. The king of Assyria is completely unaware that he is in any way a tool of God's judgment on the Israelites. In his mind, he's just going to extend his empire. But God says, no, 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 that's not what you're doing. I'm using you as a tool. And then when I'm done using you as a tool to bring my justice and judgment on my people, I'm going to judge you for the sin and arrogance that you have. I'm in charge here. I'm in control here. I'm the one ruling and governing over all of this. My friends, the sovereignty of God is a massively hopeful and worshipful doctrine. Because you know what it means? It means God is in control and therefore you don't have to be. How much of your anger in life really comes down to you're not in control of something. This other person or this situation or what's going on at work or your financial situation, you're not in control and it makes you angry. God says, listen, I'm in control of everything. So so you don't have to be anxious, frustrated, worried, concerned, mad, irritated. Listen, God is in charge. God is writing his story in the universe. God will use even sinful people to accomplish his will and his purposes. God's anger is a sovereign anger. He knows what he's doing. So we've seen God's anger is a righteous anger, a sovereign anger, and finally it is a purposeful anger. Look at Isaiah 10 verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see what God is ultimately after? What He's after is His people Leaning on him in truth. He's after his people trusting in him. Do you remember a few minutes ago in our worship when we professed the answer to that question, what is idolatry? We said essentially idolatry is trusting in treating something else as God. God's problem with his people is that they're trusting in the king of Assyria for their deliverance. They're leaning on a worldly king instead of on the king of heaven and earth. God says, I'm going to use that king as a tool of my judgment. Why? 
to confront the arrogance and the sin of my people because I want them to lean on me. I want them to live a life that's in accordance with truth. Verse 21 says, a remnant, we've already talked about that word, will what? Return. Same Hebrew word that God used in chapter 9 when he said the people did not turn. What God's after is that his people would turn, return to him. Here's what John Calvin said about this verse. The reason why God inflicts punishment is to bring back the wanderers to himself. By terrifying sinners, he only humbles them in order that they may return to him. And indeed, the beginning of conversion is to seek God. God's goal is to bring His people back to Himself. And here's the problem. We're stubborn. We're stiff-necked. We're prideful. We're arrogant. We're self-seeking. God's anger is a means of getting our attention and bringing us back to Him. My friends, God's anger has a purpose. It is not a moody vindictiveness. It is not a random event in the universe. It has a purpose. Look at verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts. So God is giving a word here to His people. O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians, when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. See what he's saying? Hey, my people, listen to me. I'm going to give you a word. Don't be afraid. Yes, the Assyrians are going to come against you. Yes, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard but he's telling them how the story is going to end. My fury, my anger toward you will come to an end. And then I will turn my anger against those who have oppressed you. God's telling them how the story is going to end. He's speaking a word through Isaiah to the people who lived in Isaiah's day, and he's telling them, here's how it's going to end. Let me tell you what's coming so that you can live by faith in the meantime. He's asking them to live by what he has said, what he has promised, not by what seems to be the reality of their circumstances. Do you see that? Thus says the Lord. Here's what your circumstances are. The Assyrians are coming. I know they're scary, but listen to me. Don't be afraid. Has not God done the same thing for us? He's told us how the story is going to end. He's told us what is coming, and therefore, the circumstances of your life should not be the defining reality for you. The circumstances of your life should not define how you live life. Why? Because you know the end of the story. You know what's coming. You have a sure word from God that says, here's what's in the future. Therefore, live by hope in me in the present. Now, the people in Isaiah's day lived at one point in the redemptive storyline, 
and we live at a different point. So let's trace this theme of God's anger forward in the story, shall we? Because we, we don't face the threat of Assyria. The way that God's dealing with us is different than the way God dealt with them in some ways. And so let's trace these themes forward. Isaiah has really given us two themes about the anger of God. You'll notice both of them. Number one, he's reiterated four times this line. His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He's given us the theme of the persistence of God's anger because it is a just and righteous anger. And yet at the same time, he's given us this theme in chapter 10 that my fury will come to an end and a remnant will return. So we have on the one hand this theme of God's anger not being turned away, his arm being stretched out, and we have this theme of his anger coming to an end and a remnant returning. Where do these two two threads, where do these two themes take us as we move through the redemptive storyline? Those two narrative threads lead us to the doctrine of hell and to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where this is all going. So let's talk first of all about the doctrine of hell, which I guarantee no one else is preaching on this morning, so we might as well talk about it. His anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still, Isaiah says. And Isaiah is pointing us to the fact that God's anger doesn't just dissipate because it's just and righteous. His hand is stretched out still and it will remain so for those who do not turn to God. The anger of God is righteous. There is a moral reason for its existence. So, my friends, hell does not exist because God is moody and vindictive. Hell exists because God is just and righteous. And because God will not tolerate evil in the universe and evil will not win the day. The reason many people in our day have sort of shied away from belief in hell is because they no longer believe that God is just. We live in a day when the idea of good and evil has been relativized to where whatever seems good to you equals good and whatever seems bad to you equals bad. But my friends, if there is such a thing as good and evil, we're thankful, aren't we, that there's a court outside of human opinion that judges that. And because there is such a court, God is just. And hell exists. Abraham asked the Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And God's answer is, yes, he will. Therefore, hell exists. But here's the good news that that second thread points us to. There is a way for God's anger to be turned away and for his outstretched hand against us to be removed. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ. God's anger is removed at the cross for all who trust in Jesus. Listen, here's the point. Let me just summarize the message. God is angry at sin and evil, which does not just exist out there in the pagans, but among the people of God. God is just. God doesn't grade on a curve. You don't get a pass just because you're part of a church. God is angry at the evil in your life. And his hand will not turn away, 
His hand is stretched out still. And yet, He has made a provision for you to be forgiven. For His anger to be turned away. And His provision is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who as we celebrated last week, went to the cross and bore the anger, the wrath, the punishment of God for those who will hide in Him. It's like this. Jesus on the cross is absorbing the wrath of God for all who will take shelter in Him. He is soaking up all of God's anger. He is taking the blow which belongs to you and me. The punishment of God, the anger of God that you and I deserve, Jesus is absorbing and taking on the cross for all who hide in Him, therefore delivering them from hell and the eternal experience of the anger of God. This is not some weird medieval doctrine. This is the justice and the moral fabric of the universe. And you see, through the cross of Jesus Christ, the holy judge of all the earth becomes our Father who art in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, bears the wrath of God so that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. And when we're adopted into God's family, here's what changes. God's punishment for sin is turned into discipline. Do you know the difference? Punishment is you do the crime, you do the time. Punishment is why we throw people in jail. It's not to make them better. We know that that doesn't work. It's just to make them pay for what they've done in some way that makes us feel good. It's a carrying out of justice. The cross is, we did the crime, Jesus does the time. And so punishment turns into discipline. The difference between punishment and discipline is that discipline is what parents do to their children so that they might be formed in goodness and in righteousness. The goal is not to make them do the time. The goal is to help them become a different sort of person. And you see, the writer of Hebrews tells us that because Jesus has borne the wrath of God in our place on the cross, that God now relates to us as a father to His children. He doesn't punish us. He disciplines us. His anger is not retributive. It's redemptive. He seeks to grow us more into His likeness. Listen to Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Notice the language of adoption right there. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This was written back when people still did this with their kids. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He disciplines us, verse 10, for our good. Why? That we may share His holiness. That's why. God's anger, if you are in Christ, is no longer directed at you for punishment, but His discipline is directed at you so that you might share His holiness. He still wants you to grow up into His likeness and be more like Him. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's why we don't want it. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Do you want the fruit of the Spirit in your life? It's not going to come without fatherly discipline. Therefore, notice what 
The, the writer of Hebrews has made this whole point about God disciplining us as His children. Here's the connection. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's saying, look, don't you understand God's disposition toward you if you're a Christian who's trusted in the Lord Jesus is one of a father and he's disciplining you for your holiness. So don't shrivel up and don't feel like God's angry with you and don't pretend like God's punishing you for your sin and don't relate to God in sort of a moral calculus that says because I did this, God must be punishing me for that. Rather, strengthen your knees, man. God's making you holy. He's growing you up. This is good news. It's good news to those who are in Christ. So Isaiah points us forward to a God whose anger is just and righteous, but a God who forgives undeserving, unrighteous sinners by sending His Son. That's the good news of the Gospel. Let's celebrate as we pray. God, we want to praise and worship You this morning for your anger. Thank you that because you are good, you do not tolerate what is evil. And God, forgive us that we live in an age of moral confusion that can't even keep those categories straight. Help us to think clearly in line with truth and what is good. Thank you, Jesus, that you bore the anger of God on the cross so that we could receive fatherly discipline. Help us to strengthen our weak knees and our feeble hands. Help us make straight paths for our feet. Make us the kind of people who walk in obedience, welcoming your discipline because you want to grow us into holiness. Father, for my friends who are here, who who maybe even this morning are connecting the dots between your anger and justice and the cross and how it all makes sense, would you this morning capture them and claim them, help them to take refuge in the Lord Jesus and in the work that he did on the cross. And God, as we come now to take communion and to be reminded of the work that Jesus did, would you help us to rest in the good news that you are angry with us no longer? And would you help us to go out of here longing to spread that good news to those who don't see it, don't know it, haven't turned to you. May we know and sense this morning that hell is real because you are just. And therefore, may we be motivated to preach the good news of the turning away of the anger of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. So help us come this morning worshipful, receiving the good news of grace. May you discipline us for our good so that we might share in your holiness, we pray. Amen.